morning. I just want to draw your attention to one uh, announcement that Richard made. Um, this Friday uh, and Saturday, we as a church, we're actually going to hold, uh, we're hosting a conference to equip women with training in the Word, with being able to read God's Word, study God's Word, and teach God's Word. Um, it's a great opportunity that we have. Uh, like Rich said, there's going to be over 100 women from all across the country to share in this time. Danielle, that's a part of our church, she's going to help to uh, teach. And uh, as they come in to our church, uh, we want to be good hosts. And what that means is that as a family, uh, we all want to pitch in to help to eliminate distractions so these ladies can come and enjoy uh, time with God's Word. So what that means is that uh, we would love to be able to uh, watch their kids. Right now, we're maxed out on male volunteers to watch their kids. So if you are a lady and you have some uh, time on Friday or Saturday, uh, would you uh, come up and talk with me or talk with Sandy back then? Back, Sandy, can you raise your hand? Yeah, just... Yeah, yeah, share with her. And, um, yeah, guys, uh, they'll be done here around 5 o'clock p.m. on Saturday night, and we'll just need some help to get this place uh, uh, back set up. Many hands make the work light, so uh, I really do want to encourage you all to come and to be a part of that. So, yeah, why don't you all stand with me as we read God's word from Luke 15, Luke chapter 15. It's a familiar story. We read through the first part of the prodigal son uh, last week. You don't even have to be a Christian to know this story. Man has two sons. One son leaves home, spends his inheritance on loose living, comes back with his tail between his legs, pleading to be accepted as a slave. And the father comes in and instead throws him a party. And here's where we're going to pick up verse 25. It says this. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So the father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we've come here today and we've gathered to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak to us, Father. Lord, if you convict us today, we pray that you would comfort us, Father. Father, if you bruise our egos, we ask that you would heal our souls. Uh, If you tear down the defenses 
of our heart, we ask that you would bring good news to us, Father. Father, would you remind us that um, any time that we've spent away from you is too long? Would you remind us that anybody that comes back to you in repentance receives a warm reception? We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your seats. There's two sides to every coin. Uh, The two sides may seem different, but they're both part of the same coin. The value of a coin doesn't change regardless of what side it's on. Right, A quarter is worth 25 cents if you give it to the cashier uh, on heads or tails. But imagine... um, being introduced to a quarter and only seeing heads. Imagine knowing that there's this coin out here that's worth something, but only seeing one side to this coin and thinking that both sides were the same. That ignorance may not seem like a big deal, uh, but it has consequences. It'll lead you to reject Something that may actually be a quarter, but it's just the side of the coin that you're not used to seeing. Each coin has two sides. The reason why I bring that up is because last week as we talked about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to come back to God, we talked about uh, the side of the coin that has to deal with rejection, the fear that you and I all have with being rejected, especially as it relates to God. We spent our time and we talked about things that you and I would do, bad deeds that we would do that make us deserving of the rejection that we experience. But I want you to know there's a danger if when you and I think of sin, uh, we only think of one side to to this coin. There's two sides to each coin. And I think at the end of the day, uh, What's more important than what makes you feel rejected in God's sight is what makes you feel accepted in God's sight. Right? We live in a world where, where we're pretty much on the same page with rejection or why God or people should reject us. Right? The reason why we have a fear of rejection is because you and I are wired for acceptance. God made us to want to be accepted. We expect to be accepted, especially when we do all of the right things. Think about the first time that you were rejected. It feels so bad because it seems so unnatural. You know, I remember, uh, I'm not sure if it was the first time, but in first grade, there was this kid, Marvin, Uh, that was a bully. I hated Marvin. Um, And it caught me off guard because it was like, he's the first person I remember that didn't like me. And I was just shocked. Like, why don't you like me? I can get why you don't like them, but me. Like, I'm smart. I'm witty. I'm nice. I think I have a great smile. But he, Marvin just didn't like me. You know, and it caught me off guard because you and I, we expect to be accepted. We're 
wired for it. And our wiring reveals that you and I have a code. We have a basis by which we feel like we should be accepted. Good deeds, the good things that we do. It's instinctive inside all of us, right? Think about times that you've been in a relationship and the person broke up with you and it's caught you off guard that what you say is, yo, what didn't I do, right? Yo, yo, I did everything right. I bought you flowers. I wrote cards. And we naturally start to appeal to our deeds, things that we've done. You and I feel that we should be accepted uh, based on our deeds. And it's not just instinctive inside of us. It's confirmed externally because we live in a world where everybody has that same instinct on the inside. So in society, on our jobs, regardless of where we go, you and I get acceptance based on deeds. And so here's where things mess up. Here's where we start to see maybe uh, that's not entirely true. Situations that take place in our life reveal that either the world is messed up or the wires, or our wires are, are crossed. Either everybody in the world is crazy, or maybe uh, the standard that I had for acceptance was wrong. Right? And you feel it. You feel it when you get passed up for a job promotion and somebody else gets it. And you know, like, why did they get it? I should have got it. And what do you immediately do? You start to appeal to the things that you've done. We're so fond of acceptance, we crave it for our good works, that it's not even outright rejection that makes us feel rejected. It is observing acceptance of somebody else that makes it feel like you and I are neglected. Think of spouses that have their first kid, right? Um, so, and like me as a man, you know, I look, and my, my wife does a great job of caring for our daughter, but there are times where it's like, oh, I remember when you used to warm up my food like that. <laughs> I remember when you used to blow to make sure it was nice and cool. Or Chandra will look at me and, you know, the way that I stare into my daughter and her eyes, and she's like, I remember when you used to do that to me, and it's like, there's not an outright rejection that takes place. Sometimes, even sitting back and observing the way that somebody else is accepted makes us feel like we crave, we want to be accepted in the same way, and even if we won't say it with our mouth, our emotions tell the full story. And I think that the same is true spiritually, especially when it comes to God. Here's what's going to take place. If you think your acceptance in the sight of God is based on your deeds, I want you to know first, um, you're wrong. And the reason why I can say that you're wrong is this is how life plays out if you think you're accepted in the sight of God based on how good that you do. If this is the worldview that you have, or if this is the worldview that you think is right, that you start to practice, um, the only, the end of this road is two things. The very first one is this, bitterness. And here's why I say this, bitterness. As you and I look around, what we'll see are people that get things that we want and we think that we should have 
But there are people that are less deserving than we are. That we live in a world where we compare ourselves, right? Comparison is not a wrong thing. That's how our brains are set up to work, right? If you teach a kid what a ball is, anything that looks round, they'll call that a ball. If you teach them what a dog is, anything that walks on four legs, they'll say dog, right? Our, our brain starts to compare things. Comparison is not wrong, but what takes place is that comparison quickly turns to envy. And now you and I start to compare how God treats them and how God treats us. They're married. They got a job. They got a spouse. They're pregnant. They got a house. What about me? And it's easy for us to misinterpret God's goodness as we measure it by the gifts that he gives. And if you think you're accepted inside of God based on your deeds, you'll find yourself bitter. It's it's an internal attitude that has an external aroma. Bitterness is like a dead rat behind a thin wall. Things look very clean on the outright, but you come around and you can smell something's off. Not only will you live a frustrated life, but if you think that acceptance in the sight of God is based on your deeds, you'll live a fictional life. You'll bottle up all the things that are wrong with you because you and I know that sharing our flaws freely, if acceptance is based on deeds, um, is rejecting the acceptance that we hope to get. Right? Who goes into a job interview and actually tells the person your three greatest weaknesses? Actually, I'm lazy, I'm late all the time, um, and I'm obnoxiously rude. Right? Nobody does that because you know that if I share my flaws, then that means I'm not going to get this job. And if you think that acceptance in the sight of God is based on your deeds, it's going to be hard for you to come clean and to be who you are, and you'll find yourself living a fictional life. Or, if you find it hard to come clean in the sight of God and share and confess your sins and let him know where you are, it may be that you really think that your acceptance in the sight of God is based on your deeds. And so the question is, if acceptance is not based on deeds, on what basis does God accept people? It's important that we know. I'm glad that you asked. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and I'll set a little bit of the context as we start. Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. This is the backdrop. This is why he tells this story, and it says this. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In light of this, Jesus tells this story. It's important to know uh, sinners and tax collectors or just that. A tax collector is not an accountant. The Bible does not have beef. If you're a CPA, we're glad that you're here. Um, tax collectors at this time were folks that stole money from an oppressed group to get wealthy and to fund the very group that oppressed them. So you can see why this oppressed group hated people that were tax collectors. But the odd thing about this is you have this group who does wrong and should be rejected by Jesus, and they're celebrating. And then you have the Pharisees, which is a group that 
does right. These were the type of folks that didn't have sex before marriage. They didn't smoke weed when they went to the movies. They didn't bring in their own snacks, right? Things like that. These are folks that kept God's standard. And these are people that should be accepted in the sight of God. And they're outside complaining. And so this story starts off, and and there's already this turn. The people that should be cast out are rejoicing. The people that should be brought in are on the outside complaining. And what that does from the start is is it just helps us see, Christianity may not be what you think that it is. And so I want to speak specifically to people in here that are not Christian um, or you're not quite sure of where you stand with God and you're not really sure why you're here, um, it may be the case that you've looked through and examined Christianity very carefully and you know exactly what its claims are and you say, I know what that is, I don't want it. Uh, But it's also very likely that if you've rejected Christianity, you may have rejected something that's not actually Christianity. So if you think, oh yeah, well there's this God and he uh, rejects people because of bad deeds and accepts them because of good deeds, and I don't want that, I want you to know I don't want that either. That's not Christianity. So I'm glad that you're here, and I ask that you would just take time and listen as we explain what Christianity is. And then at the end, if you have questions, come up and talk to us. We would love to sit and unpack that. Uh, So that's to folks that are not Christian. If you are a Christian in here, and you come in each week, and it's, oh, I already know this, I've heard this preached time and again, I know where it's going to go. I ask that you would just have the same posture. Christianity may not be what you think that it is, and I think this story um, is largely designed for people that find themselves in the church able to complete the pastor's points before he himself completes it. So if that's you and you've already heard this before and you read Tim Keller's book where he does a great job and says, John, I already know where the twist is going to come. I ask that you just step back. Listen, Jesus starts this story and the point of it all is he wants to reveal to us the attitude about God towards lost people. Charles Dickens says of this story that it is the greatest story ever written. And the point of this is that Lost people matter to God. That God loves lost people. There's a lost sheet that he talks about, a lost coin. And what you and I see is that even though it's lost, it's worth the same as all those that are found. So there is no category of people that are better than. We're all worth the same in the sight of God. Lost people matter to God. God values lost people. And on route to his point, Jesus does a a parable triple jump, right? He tells this like first story that's a little hop. There's a man that has all these sheep. He One sheep left and he went out and he got that sheep and he brought it back. Everybody rejoiced. And then he does a little skip, right? Well, then there's this lady and she's got these coins and she, she loses one in the house and she turns over everything to search for it. She finds it, and then everybody rejoices. And then it's the jump, right? He tells this story of a man that had sons, and he loses one son that this son leaves, and he comes back, and he finds him, and everybody rejoices. And what we find out is that the lost son, the way that you and I have heard it, the one son that leaves and comes back, 
that's not the point of Jesus' story. It's a big point, and that's why we spent a whole week on it last week, but it is not the ultimate point of this story. Every one of his stories thus far ends with rejoicing, there's a party that I have what I found, um, and then that's it. But this story, Jesus tells it, and the lost son is found, and it's rejoicing, and people that hear Christ start to stand up and leave out of their seats so that they can get to their car on time and not have to deal with traffic, and then they find out, oh, 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 the movie's not done yet. Jesus keeps going. And what we find is that everybody rejoices except one person, the older brother. And so I just want to draw our attention briefly to him and just start off and just be as objective as we can and show you here's the case for the older son, somebody that should be accepted. Verse 25 Read with me, it says this. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Stop right there. Uh, What we are going to do here is we're going to compare and contrast. Comparing and contrasting is good because it gives us access uh, to words that we can't use if we just have one of one thing. But because we have two things, you can use words like better or worse, bigger, Stronger, right? So what we have is two sons. And now what we see here is we see the older son coming back to the house. And what you see is this story has two sons. One son comes back to the house after sinning. This son comes back to the house after serving. He's out in the field. He, he, he works with his like hands. He's tired, dirty, hungry. He's in need. Which one seems like the better son? Obviously, the one that did right. And he hears music and dancing, and he's curious. Verse 26. So, he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The first thing we see here is, uh, he just comes in and he's out of the loop. He doesn't know what takes place, so he comes in and he just asks, what's going on? Why is there this party? He brings out a serpent and he gets informed. And after the information comes, we see his response. Good verse 28. Then he became angry and didn't want to come in. Uh, here's what I want you to know. Uh, sometimes the response that people give to neutral information tells more about the state of their heart than their words. Our emotions gossip. They tell about things that we would rather keep hidden. So as he comes in, he's mad. And it's a, it gives us a clear sign of where he is. Um, last week, right at the church, uh, I got on a plane to head to Minneapolis for a conference. As I was on this plane, um, I, I had my little screen in front of me, and I was trying to find a basketball game to watch. I couldn't, so I settled for Moana, and I started to like watch it. And 
So then as I look up, I, I look all across the plain, um, and everybody has this game on. Minnesota Vikings, New Orleans Saints, and the pilot is updating us with the score, right? I think that it's weird. Uh, so I sing along as I'm watching Moana. And, um, and then the like, plane like, goes into uproar. Like they cheer and they get mad. And so I turn over and there's a flight attendant that sits next to me. And I ask her, oh, why is everybody watching this game? And she's like, because most of us are from Minneapolis. We're flying there. We're Vikings fans. And the game ended, y'all, like in a last second touchdown that was improbable by the third string quarterback that like came, and y'all when they scored that touchdown, the plane, I mean, erupted. People are jumping, the plane shaking. <laughs> and then I look and most of the plane is happy and joyful. And then there's some people that are dejected. And I say, you must be a Saints fan. <laughs> Why? Because when there's reason for rejoice, right? You know, the information on the screen to somebody like me that really doesn't care who won, uh, it's neutral information. News isn't good or bad. Uh, news is good or bad depending on what side you're on. So as he's curious and says, what's going on? The slave just gives him information. Your brother's back. They slaughtered a calf him. And he takes that news. And he gets angry. And his anger proves this, that even though he's in the house, he's not on the same team. Do you know it's possible to be in God's house, but not on his team. There's two different ways that you and I can be lost. We can be lost, we, we can be far from God in terms of miles, or we can be far from God in terms of motives. The two stories that lead up to this one are the story of a lost sheep, one that wanders off. And the father goes and gets him. But then the next story that he tells is a story of a lost coin. This coin doesn't leave the house. It's lost inside the house. And then he says, a man has two sons. One of them leaves and comes back. But then he has this son who stayed around, who did all of the right things. And even in his obedience, he was lost. And it was clear by the fact that when God when the father and everybody else is rejoicing, he's angry. And I just want you all to look at his self-righteousness uh, right here. Um, and when you look, I want you to know that uh, the reason why Jesus tells stories like this about nobody in particular is that sometimes it's easier for you and I to see the flaws that we have uh, in somebody that's not really, really there because we don't feel like we're being talked about until Christ says, well, you're actually that man. <laughs> and so what we see is 
his emotions already told about the state of his heart and how he feels towards the father. But where his emotions tell part of the story is he gives an explanation on why he's mad. It brings us into the full story. And so I'll just say all of this. Uh, When you find yourself uh, bubbling mad at somebody else, uh, this grid of four things that I'm getting ready to share, take yourself through this grid uh, and see, all right, why am I mad? Do these next four things that I'm getting ready to share give insight into your frustration? And the reason why I say that is this. uh, Righteous anger and self-righteous anger are identical twins. I say identical twins because identical twins look a whole lot alike and we think that they're the same person, but they're not the same person at all. And the only way to really know who's who is to come through and identify. And so uh, just in your anger and frustration and complaints directed at God, see if any of these things are true. And so here's the first thing that he does. Verse 29. But he replied to his father, right? Look. Uh, there's two things that are very cl- uh, true about this story. One, uh, he, he didn't have a daddy like I had, right? Um, I can never remember a time that I told my dad, like, Bennett, now you look here. Like, uh, that didn't fly over. So, so that's one thing that's true. Um, two, uh, he's very condescending. Like, he comes, and the first thing that he's trying to do, say, look. He's trying to correct his father's perspective. Now, I know that I'm your son, but, but look. You need to hear me. If the younger son's error was that he was commanding his dad what to do, give me what's mine, come back and make me a slave, the older son's burden is not that he is commanding, but he's complaining. And these complaints, right? God wants to hear our complaints, absolutely. Uh, But these complaints are not a nice little note left in a suggestion box, Uh, these complaints are like arrows aimed at somebody that you're ready to pierce. And he starts off and says, look, there's a perspective that needs to be changed, and this is the preface to self-righteous reign. And the very first thing that he says is this, look, I have been slaving many years for you. Hey, did you notice The first thing that he says, the way that he describes his work and duty as a son is to deflate sonship and equate it to slavery. Look, you've asked me to do this, and I've done it all. I've been slaving for you. He's he's not a slave at all. But for him, this work, it feels very much like slavery. The question is, when you are frustrated with God about things that you don't get, does work, does obedience to God feel to you like slavery? God has called me to do this, and I'm just going to do it, but I'm frustrated because he doesn't care about my dreams and my hopes and my things, but I'm just going to do it. You can be very clear that there's self-righteousness that exists in your heart. If God's commands always always feel burdensome and you have to always grit your teeth and just do it and you're bitter and you would say, I'm slaving. 
for you. Not, he, he doesn't just deflate sonship, but he inflates his obedience. Look here. I have been slaving many years for you. Look. And I have never disobeyed your orders. What, what son has never disobeyed their father? It's likely that it's not true. But even if it is true, his obedience, this becomes the ammunition, the foundation of his case about why God should do for him what he thinks should be done. His focus is on his external actions. And he completely disregards his attitude or his motives. He conveniently leaves that out. Look, I've worked for you. I've never disobeyed you. But how have you felt about it? Well, let's not talk about how I feel. I've worked really hard. Do you tend to, to make more of your obedience and your compliance? than your heart towards the Lord. Three, his incentive is revealed, and it turns out he doesn't want the Father's presence being with him. He wants the Father's presence, his gifts. Look here at verse three. I've been slave, or verse 29, I've been slaving many years. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet... You never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I've worked hard. I haven't disobeyed you. And yet, you never even threw me a bone. What he's, he's telling on himself. He's saying, I did all of this because I thought at the end of all of this that at least you'd give me a, a little something. At least you'd bless me in terms of possessions. That at least I would get the honor, right? He's saying that he wants to be celebrated with his friends. Forget his family. He wants to have a group of folks praising him for how dope and faithful he is. Here's the beauty of what God does with us. Uh, sometimes God withholds things from us to expose the idols of our heart. Sometimes God doesn't give us the things that we want to show us just how bad we really want them. And what he says is, I don't have this. I should have it. How angry do you get when you don't get acknowledged, rewarded, praised for your faithfulness? Now, does that cause you to be mad? Does it cause you to look at somebody else that gets that and be jealous and angry with them? If that's the case, there may be a little self-righteousness creeping in your heart. One thing that you'll, you'll see, I mean, um, hey, if you came last week and it's like, man, I'm the younger brother, right? I ran from the Lord and I came back. Man, it's a good thing that we're going to talk about the older brother this week because uh, my week was last week. And now you're here and it's like, yo, I'm both of them. That's all of us, right? It's all floating in us. And look here at the last thing. That it starts with him 
deflating sonship, viewing obedience to the father as a burden and slavery. Then he inflates his obedience. And then he goes through and he reveals his incentive. I actually want, I don't care about you being praised. I'd much rather be praised. Fourthly here, uh, there's an independence that he wants. And it's seen in the way that he slanders both the son and the father. Look here, verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Notice the first way that he slanders his brother. Um, in that he doesn't even call him his brother. He says, but when this son of yours came, right? Yeah, yeah when my daughter acts crazy, I'm like, Sean, you need to come and get your daughter, right? Uh, you know, when she's feisty, Chandra will say, John, you need, you need to come and get your daughter. And he says, but when this son of yours came, he's not my brother, he's your son. And not only does he uh, uh, slander him like that, but he slanders him based on speculation. He speaks very confidently and he says, but when he devoured your assets with prostitutes, this story reads so that Nobody knows what the younger son did. There's no Instagram back then. Like, he's not like, yo, I saw him on the granddad, and this is what he did. He doesn't know, but he speculates. And his ignorance doesn't keep him from believing the worst. And that's so true of a self-righteous. We love to believe the worst about people and talk as if that's fact. Distance himself from the son, his brother. And then he says to the dad, he mistakes the kindness of the father for naivety. You're gonna, see, here's what's wrong with you, dad. He wasted things and now he comes back and he just gets to be scot-free. You're enabling him. He's taking advantage of you and you're too blind to see it. You're foolish. And the self-righteous heart makes itself an enemy of God because what started off with him as curiosity quickly turned into a contempt and a hatred of the way that the Father shows his grace and treats this son. And all of this stems from the belief that the son is smarter, wiser, and more compassionate than the dad. Here's how you can be brought in and include into the fact if self-righteousness is starting to find its way into your heart. If you look at somebody and you constantly think, I should have what they have. Um, they should be more like me or I wish that they would get punished for what they've done. Um, it's likely that we find ourselves in a place where we're so bitter at people because we think that we're better than them. If desperation for the younger son was the flashlight that helped him see and remember the kindness of God, pride is a blindfold that keeps us from seeing it. We look at the kindness of God towards other people and think that it's a liability. And I want you to know, self-righteousness. 
this thing in our heart that would look about what other people should get, should earn, how they should feel, um, it doesn't make you more discerning than God. It just makes you less compassionate than Him. Ezekiel 33, look, look, look at this. Uh, God says to them, tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his ways and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? God does have just wrath for sinners, for people that do and stay and insist on their bad deeds. But God does have grace for the repentant. God's wrath doesn't make him less compassionate. It makes him just. But in his wrath, he's calling for people to repent. And at the end of the day, when we long so much for justice to to take place, especially in lights of people that have done us wrong, and we get frustrated at the compassion that God shows them, it proves how selfish our hearts are. And that we want a forgiving God, but we only want a forgiving God for us. We would prefer a wrathful God for them. We love to speed down the road, but then when somebody speeds up faster than us, we love to hope that a cop would come and stop them. Here, I'm saying all of this to help us all see quiet obedience doesn't always tell the full story. If you think we're rejected because of bad deeds, it's likely for you to think, well, then I am accepted because of good deeds. And the most important thing is that I'm compliant and I do those good deeds. But I want you to know quiet obedience doesn't always tell the whole story. He's convinced that he's deserving because he's done right. Um, in two weeks, there's a group of us uh, from the church that are going to go to India uh, for 10 days. All right. There's more than that one of us. There's actually 12 of us. Um, but as we go, there's a place that we're, we're, uh, we hope to see, a place called the Taj Mahal. We've all heard of the Taj, the Taj Mahal. You know, one of the wonders of, of the world. Uh, but do you know what the Taj Mahal has in common with the pyramids. Yeah, another one under the world. Both of them are beautiful things externally that people love to flock to and be impressed by the architecture and the grandeur and all that. Uh, but do you know what they have in common? Um, they, they're actually two places that are basically graves. They house death. Death has never been housed more beautifully than in the Taj Mahal. But death is still housed there. And I want you to know, y'all, death has never been housed more beautifully than in a self-righteous heart. It looks good on the outside. People are impressed. But they're being killed on the inside while they're getting complimented on the outside and they think that they're good. The only thing worse than being lost is not knowing that you are. 
It is possible, y'all. And I want you, it's possible to be here, to spend your whole life in the church, to be able to recite all of the good things that God has done. But to be far from God, being around Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. Ask Judas about the difference, and he'll tell you. What we find out is that both sons wanted the same thing. The father's stuff. Both sons cared little about the father's presence. They wanted to be closer to his pocketbook than his heart. The younger son was just more bold. He was willing to say, I don't want you. I wish that you were dead. Give me my stuff and let me leave. The older son weaseled his way in to, to it and said, I really want your stuff. And I know that the best way to get it is to be obedient until you die. I'm waiting for, for, uh, for your death. And I'll try to smile the whole way. But he cared nothing about the father. Both wanted his stuff and despised his presence. And this is why the Bible tells us that the road that leads to destruction is broad. If you leave out of church and you're driving to Dunwoody, there are plenty ways to get there. If you want to run from God, there are plenty of ways to do that. You can run from God by bad deeds, or you can run from God by doing good deeds with the wrong motive. So what this story is meant to help us see is that in the same way that these brothers likely shared the same nose, the same eyes, same mannerisms, um, they actually shared the same heart. They're two sides of the exact same coin. And this is one thing that makes, you know, Christianity so hard for people to grasp at times. Because what we're saying is, yeah, you can actually run from God by doing all of the wrong things. And they say, all right, good, well, I'm going to try and I'm going to do all of the right things. And you can say, ah, well, well, uh, you can actually run from God by trying to do all of the right things as well. We seem lost and hopeless. And what do we do trying to make sense of all this? Look at how. This story ends. The son is on the outside complaining, and here's what I love. Once again, we see a father of interruptions. He interrupted the sons that left his last plea, and then he comes out here, and his son is angry and frustrated, and the father doesn't leave him to stew in his anger and frustration, but he comes out to talk to him. And after the son insults him and says, I don't want any part of your family with your son, look at what how the father starts off. Verse 31. Son. The older son wanted to distance himself from both the son and the father, but the father comes out and reaffirms the fact that he's still his son. What, y'all, what a privilege, what an honor that God comes and pursues the self-righteous the same way that he does those that run. Right? It's easy for you and I because self-righteousness is so frustrating, um, not in us, but in everybody else, right? It's so frustrating. We would much rather 
give them what they deserve, be harsh with them and let them see that. But notice the father comes, listen to his tone. He's just as gentle, patient, loving. And he says, son, he said to him, look, you are always with me. He reaffirms, I know that you want my stuff, but here's what's better than my stuff. Me, and you've been here, and I want you all to hear that. The gift that God gives us is not his stuff, but it's him. That's God's gift to us, us being with him. And he affirms, son, you're here, you've always been with me. And then he goes on and says this, everything that I have is yours. We hear that two ways. One is, you're so close, your needs are so taken care of, that look at all that's, that's here and treat it as, as if it's yours. Uh, my three-year-old nephew, we went over to his house this past week, and uh, he volunteered the information and said, uh, John, you're in my house. Um, and I said, your house, you, you pay the bills. Um, and he's like, no, there are no bills in this house. <laughs> and I said, what a blessing ignorance is. But it was, he was so at home with his father's stuff that he lives carefree knowing that he's safe and sound. And this is what the father says. Yo, all I have is yours. You're here. You're close. That's one way. But two, um, everything that's left really is his. The younger son left. And though he came back and was received as a son, uh, You don't get any more of what's left here, right? You spent your... So all that he has is really in the possession of this older son. And then the father says this, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. And he gives why. Why? Because because this brother of yours was dead and, and is alive again. He was lost and is found one. He says, we had to rejoice. Why? We're not celebrating your brother We're celebrating a whole family. This family has been restored. And not just that, but the father turns things on its head. He doesn't say, we're celebrating my son, but he says, we're celebrating this brother of yours. And what God says is, God refused to take the disobedient son back as a slave He would only take him back as a son. And what is very, very clear here is that anybody that's going to be in his house is going to treat him like a son. We would do well to learn from that church. God doesn't have any stepchildren. God doesn't have any children that are trying to work their way back in. If they're a son, they're a full son. And this father brings him in. And then the story ends. There's no resolution, right? The screen goes black, the credits start to roll, and folks are like, what? And at the end of this, I think the story ends this way because this story was meant to be an invitation. The ending is open-ended. This story tells us the basis by which God accepts people, and I I want you to hear this. God's acceptance is based on needs, not based on deeds. The acceptance of God is based on needs. Anybody that would come and acknowledge their need for him 
is accepted by God. But anybody that comes in and tries to prove their worth will find themselves outside frustrated that their works aren't being celebrated. The younger son is in the house partying because he came home and he knew I lost everything. I have nothing. I can come back to a father who would give me everything. The older son refused to come in because he said, I've worked real hard and I have everything. And I'm not about to let it go and come in at the same status as him. You can acknowledge your need and be brought into God's family. Or you can hold on to your pride and be left out of it. And this story is an invitation for all of us to come in. For all of us to remember that there are no amount of bad deeds that, keep, that can keep people out of the kingdom. God's blood is greater than any of them. You haven't gone too far. But, even though there's no amount of bad deeds to keep folks out, uh, there's no amount of good deeds that'll be the ticket in. And so here's the invitation. Here's how this thing ends. It ends by uh, impressing on us to join the search party. Here's what I mean by that. In this story, the right response of the older brother isn't to sit back and wait. What you see here is that in the story of the sheep, somebody goes out to find that sheep. The story of the coin, somebody goes out to look for that coin. Then it says that a man has two sons, one son leaves. They would have expected, who's going to go out and look for the son that was lost? It should have been the elder brother. But in this story, he's self-righteous, and in his self-righteousness, he doesn't want to go after the one that's lost. He's fine with him learning his lesson and crawling back home. And here's the beauty about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Y'all. Jesus was the true elder brother. In that we were lost, we went on our own way, and though Jesus never disobeyed God, had worked tirelessly for God, and earned a celebration, he left the comforts of his home in heaven to come and convince us to come back home. We haven't been left out there. Jesus is the true elder brother that has run and got us. Um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the fondest memories that I have of my brother Sam that's with the Lord now is uh, one when we were kids. Um, we were all kids. We were sitting in the car outside of HEB in Texas. It was a grocery store. Amen. I'll let the church say amen. And we were teasing my oldest brother about his weight. Um, and so what he does, convinced that there's no love for him in the family, he darts across a busy street and intends to run away. Well, what Sam did, um, Sam got out of the car and chased them across that street. And he was in the fourth grade at the time. I was in the third grade. Um, And I can still see it. As he chased across the the street, there was a white car that came. The car hit him. His head flew into the windshield. The ambulance had to come. And it was being convinced 
that Sam didn't want him to go, that he would chase after him, that caused my brother to, to come back. You know, Sam ran after him, and he was blindsided by this car. Jesus came after us, and he was not blindsided by the cross, y'all. He came after us knowing that it would cost him his life, and he would give up all the comforts that he enjoyed of being God just so that he can find That's the great lengths that he's going to for you. So that at the end of the day, your acceptance with God, it is based on deeds, but it's not based on your deeds. It's based on his deeds. And all of those are given for you. But in the same way that he knew that he wasn't going to miss out on the cross, he knew that he was going to get up with all power and spend his time convincing us of of this. So much so that the author of Hebrews, when he writes about what Christ did, he says this, for the one who sanctifies and those that are sanctified all have one father. That means those those that receive the benefit and are being transformed to God's likeness and the one Jesus that gives it all have one father and hear this. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. The older son was ashamed. This son of yours, Jesus comes and says, those are my brothers and sisters. I've got to come and get them, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns in the congregation. And I just want you all to know, y'all, this is what the Lord Jesus does. He's come after us and he's gotten us. And more than that, after he's got us and he's saved us, he's organized a search party. So that's what the church is here on earth. We are a search party that God has left here to continue to go after people that are lost. To continue to go after people that reject Christianity for the wrong reasons because they think that they're accepted based on their good deeds and rejected because of their bad deeds. And we're saying that's not true. We have nothing but good news to tell. And what we quickly find out is that the joy of experiencing forgiveness is just as good as the joy of expressing that forgiveness to people that don't know they need to be forgiven and that provision is already made for them to be forgiven. So what that means is that our lives are spent not comparing ourselves to folks, being bitter that they have what we should have, but instead our lives are are spent celebrating the work that God has done And convincing people that are far from him that they need him and that he wants them. So whether you're in an Uber on a snow day, at the grocery store, at your job, at your house, this is is the DNA, this is the thread that is woven through everybody that has been stitched into the fabric of God's church. We value lost people just as much as God does, and we orchestrate our lives in such a way to call them to repentance and to celebrate them when they come back, y'all. So here's the first step. The first thing that many of us have to do is to repent, not of our bad deeds, but for our good ones done for the wrong reasons. How do I know if that's what I have in my heart? Just take a look around and ask yourself, who are the people that you're envious of? Why are you envious of them? 
What do they have that you don't? Which often is our heart saying what they have that we should. And once that's exposed, once that's clear, turn from it. Be honest with other people. Bring them into the loop. At lunch today, before you pray for your meal, just spend time and talk about that. Ways that I need to turn, ways that I need to trust that God has my best in mind and sit down and after you pray for the meal, pray for the goodness of God in forgiving our sins. And once we repent, here's what we do. We rejoice. You and I tend to repent a whole lot and rejoice very little. So what I'm saying, don't skip out on repentance, but don't skimp on the rejoicing. Don't forget that it is a very good thing that you and I have been saved by God. It is a very good thing that He's made us His own, and it's something that we rejoice in. Then I would say, don't just join the search party. Um, Join the after party. Find people that have turned and repented of their sins and find ways to celebrate them. If you don't have anybody like that, um, right after I'm done, I'm going to bring up Amelia. um, And she started an organization years ago to help women in sex trafficking um, find their way back to the Lord, be reintegrated into society. And at the end of last week, she had an amazing story of a lady that we prayed for not a few weeks ago um, who came back, and I just asked her if she would share. So if you say, well, I don't know anybody that I can share, brainstorm with her about ways that you can rejoice. And as we do that, y'all, we'll look out in the world and we'll find a freedom from envying what anybody else has. We free from bitterness as we're reminding, as we are reminded that we have plenty of good news for a very bitter world. Let's pray, y'all. Father, we come to you and we thank you um, for the fact that you've saved us, you've called us out of being self-righteous, and you've provided us a true one, Father. And so um, I pray that we would embrace that. Thank you for your son that came to scoop us out of our mess. Um, I pray that you would give us the courage to admit uh, where we are and the grace to be reminded that Um, Where we are is not too far from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.